Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this third series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and the humanities about why and how they do what they do. Rob Weiner is popular culture librarian and liaison to the College of Visual and Performing Arts at Texas Tech. He also teaches on topics in sequential art, popular music, and the history of film. He's authored and edited and co-edited over a dozen books on everything from graphic novels to supervillains, Monty Python to The Grateful Dead. He has a remarkably wide and diverse knowledge of many aspects of vernacular culture, and he's a prize lecturer and guest speaker and a great friend of the VMC. Robert Peasley is associate professor and chairperson of journalism and creative media industries at Texas Tech, with particular research interests in media power, fan cultures, Film, Media, and Place Space, Media Anthropology, Global International Media, Superheroes and Culture. One of the spark plugs for the Flatland Film Festival and the TTU International Film Series, he also partners with Professor Jared Foster at a series of imaginative and inventive study abroad courses around the globe and is the recipient of numerous awards and recognitions, both within and beyond the Texas Tech community. So Rob and Rob are both co-editors on several volumes, including most recently a collection on The Joker, as we understand the first scholarly collection dedicated to a comic book villain. And no doubt we'll talk about that. And they've also, as we say, been great friends of and co-conspirators with the VMC for many years. Yes, fellow travelers. Uh, Gents, we like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon how the idea of the, quote, vernacular, whatever that means to you, how it intersects with your own work. But just before that, maybe we could start out by asking you about your day job and about the life events that brought you to that gig. And maybe we could start with you, Rob Weiner. Um, I grew up around Texas Tech University. Uh, It's been my whole life, really, um, ever since I was very little. Both of my parents were professors here at Texas Tech. Uh, They were in computer science. Thus, I was uh, the artsy one of the family, Um, even though my father introduced me to um, things like Monty Python and monster movies with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And I was always fascinated with giant monsters like Godzilla and still am to this day. And my brother introduced me to to, to music like um, Pink Floyd and Chicago and war and, and, and uh, grew up just really loving popular culture and music, which led me 
to where I am today. Um, you know, I worked uh, for 10 years in the local music industry, had been around musicians. I've been to over a thousand concerts in my lifetime. Um, so uh, this is a very, I'm very lucky to be here at Texas Tech and very grateful uh, to be around creative people and to teach about the creative arts and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Okay. So Rob Peasley, what about your journey here? I was born in New Hampshire and spent most of my life in New England. And then uh, after finishing a degree in, in communications, which was kind of broadly journalistic in focus, I went and did a master's in English literature where I, I focused in Irish lit at, uh, of all places, the Citadel in South Carolina. Um, and what that master's degree taught me more than anything else was that I did not want to pursue a PhD in literature. Um, and so uh, after a certain amount of time, uh, working in college admissions and, um, you know, sort of planning my next steps, uh, I did eventually go back for a PhD. And at that time, I decided to go back to my roots in communication uh, at the University of Colorado. Uh, so I did a, a PhD program in mass communications. And my focus there was on uh, the connection between communication and cultural geography. And that led me to a dissertation where I studied the uh, impact of Lord of the Rings tourism in and around New Zealand. And so I discovered during that time a love for fieldwork and ethnography and engaging with audiences of popular culture, uh, along with the interest that sort of led me to a PhD in the first place, which was close analysis of those uh, cultural texts. Uh, so I finished my PhD at Colorado. Uh, my wife and I uh, moved here to Lubbock for my first job as a newly minted uh, assistant professor, and that was 13 years ago. And here I am today. There's a there's deep roots here for all four of us as Texas Tech, whether we're uh, flatlands natives like Rob Weiner or we're expats from elsewhere. We've got we've all of us got a lot of years, and I don't even want to try to tally how many decades of service we share between us. But what I would like to do. We, we definitely want to talk about the work that you two do together because we've seen you two guys in operation together and we want to talk about the co-edited collections, including the Joker. But maybe Rob Peasley, I'll just come back to you for a second. If you would talk about, for, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with journalism and creative media industries, can you just kind of expand upon that for us and where that field works and how, where people from that field subsequently work? Yeah, so we um, are the core thing in our department, uh, which is journalism and creative media industries, is uh, storytelling. So uh, that's that's what we always fall back on, and and the the differences between them really fall along the line of audience uh, and the expectations that those audiences have. So on the journalism side, it's more public affairs and informational. On the CMI side, it's a bit more commercial, entertainment driven, uh, editorial in some cases. Um, so, you know, students go into a number of different directions with those skills. Um, we have, we have graduates in, in everything from traditional journalism, uh, environments all the way out to, um, you know, fortune 500 companies where they're using their writing or their editing or their production skills, 
to to promote or um, you know otherwise amplify the message of you know some some pretty major players in the the larger economic sphere. So there's there's a level of there's a component of it that is analysis, like the kind of thing that you described for your your own dissertation topic. By the way, writing a dissertation about cultural tourism, New Zealand, and the Lord of the Rings sounds like somebody's dream job of what the academic life would be. Can I just say? And I have more than once wanted to stow a stow away, ride in an extra flight case along with the field, the study abroad field trips that you and Jared Foster lead to places like New Zealand and Northern Ireland. At any rate, thank you for that for that unpacking of what that is, because it's both analysis and it's also uh, interpretation and creative productions. But I really appreciated the fact that you said that what unites it, what you, what you come back to within those industries is storytelling. Because that's, as a vernacular concept, that's something that, of course, we in the VMC deal with all the time. And regardless of the media, whether they are digital or analog or in-person or virtual, storytelling is really it's ancient and contemporary and it's powerful and to rob weiner um i'm sure you'll have something to say about storytelling but first just to kind of help orient our listeners um in the introduction i said that you were or chris said that you were a popular popular culture librarian and also a liaison to the college of visual and performing arts could you say a little bit about what those two jobs are are about well, um, basically, I'm sort of known as the popular culture librarian to the wider world because people come to me asking questions um, related to popular culture and and you know to to the media. I had had a call from New Zealand actually the the other night from a radio station wanting to know what I thought about a female James Bond. Um, so to the wider world um, that uh, is, is, you know, kind of what I'm known as and, and people um, look to me to talk about popular culture in a way that is academic as well as expresses itself, um, you know, so, so that people can understand it um, non-academics can understand it as as well. Um, so as a liaison, it's my job to service the College of Visual and Performing Arts, doing instruction sessions, ordering materials, help being helpful, doing guest lectures, you know, in my subject subject areas, which is popular culture. Um, you know, whether it's in in comic books and superheroes or a lecture on the Grateful Dead and San Francisco music that I do for your class, uh, Dr. Landis, um, or, uh, you know, vampires in popular culture that I do for, for the vampire class, uh, you know, um, any of those things or how to use library resources uh, for an art class. So, um, but... You know, the popular culture librarian tag just sort of was given to me and and it just kind of stuck um, and people started calling me that. I didn't necessarily um, started, you know, necessarily um, 
gave myself that title. It just sort of happened that way. And people started referring to me that way because of the work that I do in popular culture and being known as a popular culture scholar um, across the board. And the fact that, you know, people from media would contact me to ask me questions related to popular culture and and um and so forth so yeah absolutely and uh i i recall a wonderful experience i had um doing a guest lecture for your class actually rob weiner which i as i recall i don't know that i have the title correct but it was something like the 1950s roots of 1960s culture or the grateful dead and popular culture something like that but you asked me to come in and talk about that, the 1950s roots of 60s culture. And I had thought about that before, sort of peripheral to some of the research that I do. But it was great to really be nudged to think, now, how much were those people hippies? I'm vastly truncating my own presentation for your students. And how much were they beatniks or the inheritors of the beat tradition? And it really made, really made me think about the ways in which popular culture aesthetics get passed on and the ways that they cross what we might otherwise think of as eras, like there's the 50s and it's really different than the 60s, except that most of the people who shaped the 60s actually had their consciousnesses formed in the 50s. And it was just, it was, it was wonderful to have the opportunity to reflect and then engage in dialogue with students in ways that made me question my own received stories. Likewise, when Roger and I conceived the idea of inviting you two gents, Rob W. and Rob Pete, on the podcast, it also made me think about how the vernacular, I mean, we, we're in the Vernacular Music Center, music, Vernacular Music and Dance, we are mostly roots music guys, Roger and myself, by various definitions. Roger has a wider range of musical engagement than I do. But it also made me really think about, well, what is vernacular? And not in a skeptical way, but in a self-questioning way. What is vernacular about a superhero film or even more, a superhero universe, Rob Peasley or Rob W. The superheroes are our modern mythology. Okay. They are our everyday gods. Okay. You can go practically anywhere in the world and show someone from the ages of two to 120 a picture of spider-man or batman or superman or even the symbol of superman or batman or spider-man or even the joker for that matter or or wonder woman um and they're going to know what that is even if they've never seen a movie played a video game or read a comic the superhero are our our modern stories, our mythology, they represent um, the best of what humanity has to offer our modern culture. Um, and even though most of it is movie-based now, because um, not as many people read the comics as, say, you know, the millions of people who did in the 1940s when they first appeared, um, they've grown to be part of our vernacular culture and 
are so ingrained in our collective unconsciousness that everybody knows these characters and they're so important to who we are and the stories are so important, you know. And everybody knows the phrase, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. They may not know that Stan Lee wrote those words, but they know the phrase, you know. Just saying. Um, Rob Weiner, that's a fascinating insight. And uh, I'll admit, I didn't know that Stan Lee had written that phrase. So I'm glad to learn that today. Um, I thought that was a far older phrase. And also, maybe that gets to your point about it being mythology. Maybe it fits with this idea that those, those superheroes, those mythological figures, those those everyday gods, as you said, um, are fulfilling archetypes. And it's maybe it's interesting in, uh, in our world that those archetypal um, roles were um, available to be filled from the 1940s. I'm sure there's a fascinating story there. But I also wanted to pivot to Rob Peasley um, to chime in here on, on what we've just been talking about. When I think of the vernacular, I, I certainly think that superheroes are an important part of how we work through any number of things collectively today and, and you know, for decades, really. Um, a big part of uh, the function of superheroes in comics uh, early on was understanding things like fascism and, and World War II and responding to them and, and uh, you know, dealing with the trauma of those uh, those times, those events. Um, we've seen superheroes and superhero universes uh, work us through 9-11, uh, work us through issues today like climate change and refugee crises and, uh, you know, general issues related to scarcity, uh, precarity, and so on uh, that, uh, you know, are, are not easily addressed at scale head on. Um, they're, but they are addressable through the otherwise pleasurable medium of film, uh, or television or comic books. And, uh, you know, I think, I think one of the, one of the primary values of, you know, a, a, a purveyor like Marvel or Disney, you know, uh, or Lucasfilm, it's all the same company. So, uh, that, that doesn't get talked about enough is that they, they, Yes, they're doing all these things for profit, uh, but there is a certain degree of artistry to what they're doing, largely because they have so much money, uh, they can do it, uh, and they can do it quite well. Uh, not perfectly, certainly, but they do give us an opportunity as an audience to work through some of the more challenging issues that we face in a way that doesn't feel dangerous. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because, again, just as with Rob Weiner's class, this conversation is helping me think through these kinds of, of relationships. And something that Roger said just now that really struck me, that's the idea that humans depend upon archetypes and archetypal situations to deal with eternal challenges of why are we born? Why do we die? 
Why does suffering exist? Are there any alternatives to conflict? Are we driven only by greed and selfishness? And that, as you're saying this, Rob Peasley, that impulse to mythologize huge, challenging questions in order to seek metaphorically resonant and powerful empowerments. I know that's a big word, but you know, to find heroes, right? To find heroes, whether they are the chosen one type, which Roger and I are both sort of done with, or for us in the VMC more powerfully, the the, the image of the community as heroes of people who are challenged by extraordinary events and band together in extraordinarily mutually supportive ways. Those metaphors have been important to us for 40,000 years since the cave paintings under Lascaux. And, and to see graphic novels, to, since it's a graphic medium, graphic novels or, or film, maybe the costumes have changed or the number of syllables in the, the names have changed. But what those archetypal characters are accomplishing is kind of eternal. It's an eternal human need. What is the story of Superman but the story of Moses? You know, um, sent away, you know, Moses was, you know, put in a basket and sent away. Um, Superman put in a spaceship, sent away. Moses was found, you know, raised in, you know, um, opulent splendor. Unlike Superman, raised in a small town by, you know, middle America, um, you know, but um, it still is basically the same archetype, right? Um, it's, it's the same, same story, more or less. Um, so, um, you know, and there's, there's a great irony in a character like Captain America, for example, um, where you've got two Jewish guys creating this blue-eyed, blonde, Aryan character to fight Nazis. Now, you're, you're speaking about the two artists who initially conceived Captain America. Can you tell yeah, us Jack about them? Kirby just Kirby and Joe, Joe Simon. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about them, Rob, and just sort of ex expand upon this idea that here are two guys who might, in the period, have seen themselves as kind of marginalized because of their ethnicity or their age or the fact that they did or didn't serve in the armed forces, but they create this sort of archetypal character. Can you just expand on that? Well, they they did eventually serve in the armed forces, but but they understood Captain America was actually created and published before we entered World War II. And in fact, the first issue showed Captain America slugging Hitler. They already understood the evil that Hitler and the Nazis represented because there was a very big at that time um fifth columnist slash pro-Nazi American Nazi movement within the United States, an isolationist movement um, in the early 1940s, late 1930s. Um, but they understood that, that, that eventually it was going to become worldwide 
and they understood that Hitler represented um, that kind of evil. And, um, you know, both of them, you know, Jack Kirby changed his, you know, his real name was Kurtzberg, but he changed his name to, to be, a, you know, be a little more accessible um, to get work. And, and the creators of Superman, too, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, were also Jewish. And they were attempting to create a Messiah-like figure as well, you know, because um, of the prejudice that they encountered. Um, one of the interesting things, you know, there, there are two major industries that Jews created because they couldn't go anywhere else and that is hollywood and the comic book industry because they were both looked down upon at the time of their creation and and they couldn't couldn't get work anywhere else because nobody would hire them in in major industries because they were jewish so you know there was a lot of prejudice um against them at that time so yeah, that's a model that we talk about sometimes, Roger and myself in the podcast, and also in our own teaching, the idea that so much of American popular culture, which has subsequently, much of it has gone worldwide in all kinds of ways, which can be enriching, but also perhaps sort of enveloping in all the complexities around global culture and global consumption. But we do talk about the fact that in a lot of American vernacular culture, great art forms have arisen at the margins either the economic margins or the geographic margins or in relatively minoritized or isolated communities and then entered popular culture from from those the mainstream of popular culture from those margins so i'm thinking like the work that i do all the way back in 1830s and 1840s blackface minstrelsy and the work that roger has done on rock and roll and the work that both of you guys have done on comic books and superheroes both in print and in film so often these art forms were created or emerged from or their initial conception emerges on the margins of white middle-class North American culture. And they have over and over again enriched that culture, sometimes at considerable cost to the original creators who got their names taken off of things or didn't control their copyrights or that kind of thing. But it's nevertheless a very powerful kind of of um, dynamic. And it's, I'm thinking of this Rob Weiner because of what you were just saying about these guys who understood themselves to be on the fringes, right? They were not, they were not the blue eyed Aryan heroes that they drew and wrote, but they, their capacity to understand that the nation needed heroes and their, their dedication. That's the thing I come back to over and over again with these stories of the early film industry, the early comics industry, for that matter, the early African-American recording industry is that over and over again, the sort of ferocious dedication to carving a niche for oneself, grabbing a rung on the economic ladder as a result of one's own aggressive creativity in ways that are sometimes like really either groundbreaking or really kind of artistically risky. What Schuster and Kirby and Simon and Little Walter and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf did was not anything that people had done before that way. And it was aggressively, and this is kind of 
beautiful in a way. It was aggressively commercial. It's people who were have-nots seeking rungs. And to me, that's powerful. And it's, it's, in a way, it's kind of pure. Well, it's, it's important to mention, too, that it took Schuster and Siegel almost five to seven years before they got Superman sold. It took them a long time. And even then, nobody thought it would do anything. And it sold like hotcakes from the very first issue of Action Comics in 1938 and changed the game forever. So I'm thinking about something that Rob Weiner said a few minutes ago about the uh, superheroes being mythological figures and showing us the best of humanity. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, they also show us the worst. And so I was thinking about, we got to talk about villains at some point. So maybe Rob Peasley, would you like to jump in here about villains? I would. And uh, it's, it, it's interesting to think about as you were talking about the, the early days with Superman and Captain America you know that that time period, late '30s, early early '40s, onset of the war. Um, it, I didn't live through it, but I, I suspect that it was a time of great um, stress, a time of uh, real existential dread uh, among average people. And uh, you know, at that time, the the impulse that that folks like Siegel and Schuster had was to create these heroes that were unassailable. Um, it's interesting today that in perhaps comparably fraught times. Uh, we our, our collective taste seems to be not uh, toward unassailable his, uh, heroes, but rather imperfect ones or even uh, otherwise villainous characters who, with whom we still are invited to empathize in some way um, or identify. And, and that's one of the reasons that, we, that Rob and I uh, put together the Supervillains Reader uh, last year was the attempt to, you know, have a sustained conversation about not just the supervillain today, uh, but also the the breadcrumbs going back to antiquity, to myth, to literature, to uh, early film and and broadcasting, all the way up through comic books and sequential art, and to try to to try to make those connections. It's, it was ultimately, you know, a, a mission that was destined to fail because we only had, you know, a hundred thousand words of space and, you know, we needed, you know, 20 times that to do what we wanted to do. But, you know, the, the attempt was to sort of make this synthetic contribution across time and media uh, to, to really, you know, if, if you're interested in the concept of the supervillain, give you a place to start and uh, some breadth on what that might actually mean. So if I can follow up with that, thank you. And thanks, Roger, for thinking to, to pivot from heroes to villains. Um, if I can follow up on that, and Rob Peasley or Rob Wine, please feel free to just jump in with each other. What are some of the things that emerged in assembling that collection that you didn't so much anticipate? Where If there were recurrent themes in the various pieces of writing, I'm sure there were things you did expect. Right, you know, surely a lot of people will reference X or Y or sexuality or transgression or whatever. But were there other themes that emerged that you didn't anticipate, but which were kind of discovery for you too as editors? I think for me, one of the most interesting pieces was a was a reprinted piece that Rob P found 
on Captain Ahab as a gothic villain from Moby Dick. You know, I never, I never saw Captain Ahab as necessarily a, a character to admire. He certainly was obsessed, but as a gothic villain, as a gothic character, as part of the gothic tradition, I never would have would have guessed that. So that's the, one of my favorite pieces in the book. Um, so that that was a surprise. So that as a gothic hero. As a gothic hero, he's there's a there's a there's a charisma about him. He's not purely evil, or if he may be purely evil, but there is also a, a sort of charismatic attraction. Is that what you mean by a gothic hero? A gothic villain. Gothic villain. Excuse me. Yes, of course. Yeah, there's a Freudian slip, right? Yeah, there's there's a certain charisma about him, but um, he's. You know he's he's obsessed and and it's that obsession that leads him to his demise. The uh, the the thing that I didn't mention about the the reader that Rob referenced there is that uh, it's a mix of new work and reprints of of older stuff um, that you know we sort of collected. So for example, we have uh, uh, Krakauer's famous essay on Caligari in there that um, you know sort of. Helps us understand how Caligari, as a as a film um, and as a production process, uh, you know, helps us understand a little bit about uh, pre-Hitler Germany and and the ways in which uh, the the producers' decisions about how to frame that film with the storytelling device of the dream uh, sort of undercuts its potency as a critique of authoritarianism uh, and therefore sort of contributes to a a kind of um, apathy, you know, uh, cultural apathy that would ultimately result in the Third Reich. Uh, and I, I've just always loved that piece, and it, and it seemed like a really great way to take us through, you know, some of those some of those early iterations, particularly in film, of the supervillain character, the mad scientist, you know, some of those tropes, things like that. That's fascinating info about the film Caligari. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that film and about its context? Sure. So, it, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a, a German expressionist film. Um, it's a you know, probably the most cited example of German expressionism in cinema. Um, you know, very uh, expressive kind of um, uh, high contrast lighting, lots of weird angles. Um, you know, really. Uh, in some ways kind of a, a precursor to what would become film noir in the United States. Um, but also in terms of content, you know, um, d dark as well. And, um, you know, very, very concerned with the, uh, you know, the, the kind of inner, um, turmoil or the inner, um, uh, iniquity of, of human existence. Um, so the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a great, uh, example of that tradition. Uh, it has to do with a, uh, you know, kind of a mad scientist character who creates a, a kind of golem, uh, homunculus type character who, um, you know, becomes a, a source of terror through the film. So it's generically a horror film. Um, and one of the sort of iconic and, you know, one of the DNA sites of horror, but it is also uh, a meditation on, you know, the, the, the way in which uh, political authority 
can be sort of yielded, you know, to to this um, kind of lumbering, evil, non-human sort of uh, I don't know uh, cipher, I guess. And and the the framing device of the story uh, is a is a dream sequence. So the idea is that uh, this whole thing was just a dream, and that was added in. Uh, as a producer decision to sort of undercut its political message. It's also one of the first films where things are not what they seem to be. And everything, you know, as, as Rob P. mentions, the dream sequence, everything, you don't know what's real and what isn't real throughout the film. And, and uh, um, it's... Uh, it's a, a masterpiece of horror, and it's, a, you know, as Rob P. mentions, there's a good reason why it's it's uh, cited so much uh, in film history. Um, it's 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 certainly it resonates, and and it's just a, it's just a, a weird but interesting film to watch. And I still, you know, occasionally will have an honor student come up to me and ask me. Have have you ever seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? You know, and so, you know, it's a, it's a film that still resonates with people when they see it the first time. I'm sitting here uh, thinking about some work that Chris and I did together, actually at the invitation of uh, Rob Peasley about uh, what six years ago now. Um, Rob was. Uh, um, curating the uh, Flatman Films Festival, and he in, came to Chris and invited uh, the VMC to collaborate on some sort of project for that. And Chris came to me and I said, well, I've been wanting to do a live score for uh, Nosferatu for a long time and have never been able to talk anybody into letting me put it on. And at the time and since, I've been the director of the Balkan Ensemble, Balkan Music Ensemble. And my idea was to kind of re- you know, kind of pull Nosferatu back uh, towards the cultural roots to which they were referring in the text by using uh, Balkan music in the score. And so what we ended up doing, Chris and I, was we, we co-composed a score that actually used uh, more Western European sounding tropes as well as uh, Balkan tropes. And we premiered that at uh, the Flatland Films Festival in, I think, October of 2015. And then we've since done it a few more times and taken it on the road uh, uh, in a very limited way. Um, and I couldn't help th thinking about that um, as you were talking about the uh, uh, Caligari and th the fact that Nosferatu kind of inscribes many of the tropes, the visual tropes, anti-Semitic tropes that were used uh, by the Third Reich. It presages a lot of that visual language, I think. Uh, although that's not my area. And then as we were researching the history of the film, because we wanted our students. So I should have mentioned that this these performances of this um, live score for Nosferatu, uh, we, uh, Chris and I composed it with the intention of having these student ensembles or actually a blended ensemble of two different student ensembles perform it. And in order to do that and to interact with this very problematic cultural artifact, we needed to do our research on how the film came about and what is in it and teach that to our students so that they knew what they were dealing with. And uh, 
we found in our research that not only did Murnau um, and the producer of the film uh, recast everything, basically they stole the Dracula story, changed all the names to protect the guilty. And one of the changes they did was they changed Dracula to Orlock. And I am certain, and I haven't read this anywhere, but I'm certain that they chose the name Orlock because they based the characterization of Dracula, their version of Dracula, Orlock, on um, a really prominent uh, Victorian Shakespearean actor's horribly anti-Semitic caricature in his portrayal of Shylock from The Merchant of Venice. Orlock, Shylock, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious when you look back on it. And when you look at the visual language that the uh, Third Reich used to defame um, uh, Jews, you see a, a connection, a real strong connection there. And so in a way, this was kind of a kind of a pilot in some ways for what came after. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Roger, because that was a very rich and complicated topic. And as teachers, which we all of us are, um, particularly people who who work with culture and cultural expressions and cultural archetypes and stereotypes and with the history of such things, if we were going to use it as a teaching tool, we wanted to go, we, as Roger and I said to each other at that time when Rob Peasley approached us, we want to go right at it. And so it was, and it, this brings me to a, an observation, I, just a, a, a follow-up maybe for Rob Weiner. Um, we've talked about the early inception of these archetypal superheroes like Captain America and Superman and the kinds of people who use those inventions to build their own creative agency. Rob Peasley has spoken about uh, these early examples of horror films or of films that, that actually presage the rise of Nazi Germany or that as Roger was saying, reinscribe the anti-Semitism in the existing texts. The fact that I would add to that conversation about Nosferatu that that there's a character, there's an element of that that's that that's very there's tremendous misogyny in that film because Orlock himself is this he, he's a he's a vulpine, horrible-looking creature. The actor Max Schreck very much in an expressionist form, highly exaggerated, highly stylized. And yet the young woman who is the heroine of the film and the sacrificial victim of the film, God help us, is also sexually attracted to him. So there's this whole, this whole, that, that kind of dark charisma that Rob Weiner was talking about. It made me think of another project that you two have collaborated on fairly recently, which is this big volume on the figure of the Joker who reminds me, I'm not saying you know the cheap allegation, oh, well, he has really exaggerated features, just like Orlock, but uh, not really, I don't really mean that. What I mean is across all the manifestations of the Joker that I've ever seen, and I'm not the scholar that you guys are, there has been a danger, he's a homicidal maniac, but there's also, he's constantly framed as carrying this sort of sexual attraction. And Rob, can you, Rob Weiner, can you, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you said that you saw it in earlier villain figures like Ahab, but you guys just recently put together a big volume on the Joker. So what is it about the Joker? Why, what made you guys want to create a volume about that character? And again, earlier question we asked, what did you expect to find? What, 
appear that you didn't expect would appear in those pieces? Maybe Rob Weiner first. Well, the, the Joker idea had been brewing with us for quite some time because, again, there was a gap in the literature and the joke, you know, the Joker is, you know, next to Satan and Moriarty, the, the biggest villain of all time. And there was, you know, this gap in the scholarly literature that uh, uh, Dr. Peasley and I wanted to, to fill. And, you know, the Joker also has its roots in an expressionist film called The Man Who Laughs, also, Conrad Veidt from Dr. Uh, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Man Who Laughs with a permanent grin on his face. Uh, the Joker created by Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson, and Bill Finger. Um, and, you know, one of those villains that not only was there one, but two stories in the first issue of Batman magazine featuring the Joker. So already we knew that there was something special about the Joker. And I think that one of the things that makes the Joker so compelling is that you don't know what you're going to get. You know, just like the Joker is the wild card in the pack of cards, um, the Joker can do anything. You know, the Joker, and I say this every single time we, we talk about the Joker book and, and the Joker as a character, the Joker is just as likely to let you live as he is to kill you. He's most likely going to kill you, but he might let you live. Okay, there's a chance, a small one, but it's still a chance. So you don't know what the Joker is going to do. And that's what makes the Joker such a compelling and appealing character. But I think in, in our book, the, the essay that appealed to me the most was a comparison between Lady Gaga and the Joker. Um, you know, that, that was quite interesting. And I know, I, I know that Rob P has a particular essay that, that he really enjoyed as well. Yeah. Well, I like, uh, the thing I like about the Joker is that, uh, he, he's this kind of embodiment of uncertainty. Um, and you don't know, you not only don't know whether he'll let you live or die, uh, but as a reader, as a consumer, you you really can go into a story with a a, a very pleasing level of uncertainty about what you're going to get out of that character. Um, creators feel a lot of latitude um, to to pour you know whatever they have uh, you know that that they're thinking about or whatever their whatever their predispositions might be creatively into that character. He's capacious um, and. That I love that about the Joker, and I love that different creators can bring different different things into that character in a way that you you just don't have the same kind of latitude with, um, you know, almost any other character in in either of the big universes. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I would not have thought of that. I, I I would not have gone in that direction. But like like any of the great archetypes, there can be many Jokers. I mean, if I could say it that way, there can be many Jokers. I'm really glad to hear your thoughts, Rob and Rob, on 
the Joker. I don't think I've ever really understood the Joker from the the television series in the sixties when I was a kid up through the, that kind of uh, uh, horrific uh, characterization by Heath Ledger. Um, I always thought he was being portrayed and I didn't, I never felt good about this. I felt he was being portrayed as mentally ill and particularly with the Heath Ledger uh, portrayal. Um, it was brilliant acting, but it made me uncomfortable <laughs> during the whole film. Uh, I wonder what your take is both or either of you on that. Well, certainly he, he, he is objectively portrayed as mentally ill in many, many of the portrayals. I mean, he's locked up in Arkham Asylum over and over and over again. Uh, so in the story world, that seems to be a marker that, you know, he's, that, that that's how he's regarded. Um, but there are other iterations of the Joker, other um, places in the, the narrative, you know, the wider narrative universe of the Joker, where all these different creators have come together to, uh, you know, sort of rearticulate him over and over again, where he's referred to as um, not insane, but actually super sane. Um, you know, sane to such a degree that everything else is insane. And therefore, uh, you know, what he's doing is, in fact, um, you know, the only sane thing to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we could go down a, a long rabbit hole there philosophically about, um, you know, what makes sense, nihilism, etc. But um, the thing that that's that's useful about the Joker narratively is that that decoupling of oneself from what is in real, what is sane, um, can feel very near when you're reading a Joker story. Um, I love one of my favorite Joker stories is the, is the killing joke. And the whole premise of that story is that one really bad day can push any of us into you know an existence like the jokers um and uh and i I, that's the thing that i've always appreciated about the joker i think that's the thing that that joaquin phoenix is going for in joker um which is a loose uh adaptation of the killing joke in some ways so um to me that's what's resonant about the characters that we all feel a little too close to him when we're with him we we feel like we could go there and so rob peasley you were talking about your uh earlier about your study abroad experiences in new zealand with the lord lord of the rings and in northern ireland with game of thrones you study abroad is where you take students to the actual place how how does being in the actual location of these cultural artifacts change or enhance uh what you do in the classroom. I'm really lucky to, to, to do those programs with a great collaborator and Jared Foster. I, I, I have two great collaborators. One of them is on this, on this podcast and the other is Jared. Um, and Jared's a photographer, uh, among other, among other sort of storytelling, um, talents. So we have students, um, you know, sort of following these tourism itineraries and understanding, how tourism operates, what some of the impacts of tourism might be, seeing them firsthand, um, and then documenting that photographically through 
uh, you know, basically learning how to how to be a travel photographer on assignment. Um, and so it's a great portfolio builder for students. But more importantly, I think they learn what it means to to document a place and what that responsibility looks like and what happens when you share that narrative uh, visually or otherwise with the world. Right. You're constantly rearticulating these places in a particular way. And there's a, there is an ethical responsibility involved there. Um, so we like that that nice connection between the the um, sort of practical professional type of preparation, but also the the more um, conceptual, theoretical, critical approach to to those practices. So I have to ask, as somebody who has lived many many hours, months, years in fictive um, um, environments. What's it like to, to step out of that, which lives in your head, um, even though you've seen it on a flat screen, what's it like to step out of that and to bring students to step out of that into the actual environment that maybe isn't the same as what was portrayed, but th the environment is a character in the, in the narrative as well, right? What does it feel like to step into that for the first time? It, there is, there's nothing like it. I mean... That, that was the whole impetus of my, my dissertation research. I went and visited Hobbiton in New Zealand as, a, as a, just a rank tourist, just showed up and went and uh, had this really like emotional transformative experience there as a, as a long, lifelong Tolkien fan. And immediately as I was leaving, I thought to myself, why? You know, why? This is 10 acres of sheep farm. It's no different from the 10 acres of sheep farm over there. Uh, but and it's got a few pieces of wood in the ground, and this one had a tour guide. And yet, because I could re recognize it, it mattered. Right? It was it was very meaningful. So that was the that was the impetus. Like, why is that? Why is the things that we see on a screen? Uh, why are they more meaningful to us than things that aren't? And uh, and and it is it is it never gets old. Going back to Hobbiton, I've probably spent more time in Hobbiton than anybody on Earth, aside from the people who actually work there. And bringing students into that environment, especially the ones who are real dyed-in-the-wool uh, Tolkien fans, because they they cry, and uh, and I did too. And it's really it's really uh, you know gratifying, but also you know pedagogically important because they they don't get what I'm they don't really get what I'm uh, what I'm interested in when I talk about these relationships between media and place until they have that experience when, when it's really embodied. So I have to ask, I think both Roger and I are bursting to ask, are there more things from your partnership, Rob Weiner and Rob Pease, are, are there other things we can look forward to, other collaborations, other topics or projects that you have in mind? Yes, as a matter of fact, we've just started our fifth project together. Um, it's going to be a book about artist Alex Ross, who is uh, more or less a Lubbock native and uh, is known for photorealism in sequential art. His, his work is unlike anything else you've ever seen in terms of comic art. And uh, he's also extended work into film and video games, as well as uh, done work for the Oscars and action figures and uh, is, uh, needs to be in the Lubbock Walk of Fame. <laughs> Okay, so 
Uh, one thing we should say to our listeners is that all of these titles that Rob Peasley and Rob Weiner have mentioned, and more besides, will show up in our bookshop.org VVMC book club. You can find these volumes and order them through bookshop.org and participate in the conversations that happen there. There's also always a YouTube playlist and we'll ask Rob and Rob to make some contributions to that. So it only really remains for Roger Landis and myself to say thank you, gents, for this wonderful conversation, which is obviously only a kind of foundation and about which we will surely have to follow up when the next round of bigger than life blockbuster uh, narrative storytelling films emerge. So thanks, guys. I would like to to uh, to ask if we can reconvene after we've all seen the first volume of Dune. I suppose we can. Absolutely. I this was this has been so much fun. I'll be back whenever you need me. I am so there. Likewise. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Thanks to our guests, Rob Weiner and Rob Peasley. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stocker. And our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our podcast consultant, Seed Pod Productions at Seed Pod Sound. See you next time.